Well, it is good to be back in the Gospel of John this morning. Join me in John chapter 16, where we left off about two months ago. John chapter 16, where we are looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. John 16, verses 5 through 11. And I'm going to read the text, set it in our minds. This is Jesus speaking to his apostles. And he says in verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. As we enter into this text, remember where we are in Jesus' life. We are only a few short hours away from Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and death. This is early, very early Friday morning. And you remember where we are in Jesus' farewell discourse, his long goodbye that he's giving his apostles. Back in John 14, it's a discourse that began in 13. Back in John chapter 14, we read those words of comfort from Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. These were words meant to calm the apostles' fearful fearful hearts. So we entered into chapter 15, those last 14 verses that we looked at. Jesus has promised his apostles coming hatred and future pain and certain ostracism from the world after he departs. From comfort to anger. And Jesus' words were clear. Hatred is coming to you. Look back at chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus' promise, if the world hates you, and the idea is it will hate you, there's no doubt here. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. As much as the world hated Christ, it will hate Christ's followers. Look at verse 20. Verse 19, I chose you out of the world because of this. The world hates you. We belong to a different realm. We're recipients of divine grace and rescued from Satan's evil chains. And so we will experience satanic anger the world has against Christ. Drop down to chapter 16, verse 2. It's anger that shows itself in action. They will, because of this world, hating Christ. But the world can't, they can't get to Christ. So what will they do? They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. They'll try to remove Christ's followers from society. Maybe estranged from family and friends. For most of these apostles, this is what happened to them. 
They experience this, and they experience this next promise. They will kill you. They will kill you, thinking they're offering service to God. So Jesus' final farewell has turned dark. From words of comfort to now promises of pain. Promises that remain even today for us who follow Christ. Think of 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be hated and shunned and ostracized. And yet, within these warnings of worldly hate, Jesus was no less clear. His apostles and all who come after his apostles who believe in him, we must not retreat from this world in fear. We must not withdraw from this world in panic. We must not become silent in self-preservation. Why? Because Christ has left us with a task to fulfill until he returns. Look back at chapter 15, verse 27. Here's our task. You will testify. That's our task. In Matthew 28, Jesus put it this way, go and make disciples of all the nations. In Luke 24, Jesus put it this way, repentance must be proclaimed throughout all the world. Acts 1 using the same terminology as John 15, that testifying terminology, you shall be my witnesses, my testifiers, even to the remotest part of the earth. Above all, this is our calling. This is our task. When the world rages, we witness. When the world threatens, we testify. When the world darkens itself in sin, we shine the light of Christ's gospel. This is the only right response to gospel hatred. And literally, this is the one commission Christ has left us with. Testify of him. But if we are honest, we see how often we can get sidetracked with other missions and other tasks, right? How it's easy for us to become distracted by other movements and agendas. Save the planet. There's a movement. Make America great again. There's a movement. Maybe on the other side of the aisle. Build back better. There's a movement. How about the personal movement? Achieve the American dream. And you can add countless numbers of others to this list. There's an infinite amount of movements and tasks and agendas we could devote ourselves to. Infinite number. But none of them, none of them are the task Jesus has left us to fulfill. The mission Christ has given us is the task in verse 27, 1527, we must testify. Martyreo, you can hear the word martyr in that. We bear witness, even in the midst of hatred. 
We're called here to do what John the Baptist did in John chapter one. We see, I myself have seen and have testified, same word, have testified, proclaimed that this is the son of God. That's his mission, that's our mission. We've been tasked to do what the Samaritan woman did after she met Jesus at the well. She returned back to her town and she testified, same word. She testified, he told me all the things that I have done. We're to follow God the Father's lead. God the Father testified of his son's glory. We read that in John 5, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. This is our task, to speak of Christ, to proclaim his person, to explain his work, to call unbelievers to repentance from sin, call them to turn to Christ in faith. If there's any movement we will devote ourselves to, this is that movement. It's far greater than saving the planet. This is the mission of souls being rescued from God's wrath. This is far greater than making America great again. This is the goal of seeing men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation glory in Christ forever. But again, if we are honest, we are fearful of this task. We're more fearful than energized by it. We shy away from it far more than we engage in it. And one of the reasons is because we have much to lose. If we devote ourselves to testifying of Christ, we have much to lose. We read what we can lose in chapter 15. You can lose family, lose friends, employment, respect, acceptance. 16.2, you might even lose your life. And then when you couple those fears of loss with the realization that we are in and of ourselves obviously deficient for this testifying task. None of us here are prepared enough to answer every skeptic. None of us here are adept enough to win every debate. None of us here are strong enough to open blind eyes to see the glory of Christ. When you couple those two realities together, the fear of loss, our own deficiencies, it is no wonder we stay quiet about the gospel. That makes sense. It's no wonder we would never testify of Christ in a world that hates him. The challenge is too big. The unbeliever's heart is too hard. The consequences are too real. And yet all of those fears and all of those feelings of inadequacy are based on the fact that we have forgotten the gift and the person Jesus promised to give his people once he ascended to the Father. If we have those fears, we have forgotten the spirit of Christ. This brings us to our passage. Look at verse five. Jesus says, but now I am going to him who 
sent me. This has been Jesus' consistent message throughout this night. I'm leaving you, Jesus has said. And yet Jesus has been equally clear that after he leaves, he will send someone to his apostles, to us. He'll send someone to take his place. Look back at chapter 14, 14, 12. Jesus says, because I go at the end, because I go to the Father, I'm leaving you. This is not a time to sorrow or be fearful. It's a time to rejoice. Why? Because of verse 16. Because as I leave you, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So my leaving means the Spirit's coming. And that Spirit, he may be with you forever. He abides with you right now. But after I leave, he will be in you. So the Son's leaving will usher in the Spirit's coming. Look at verse 18, 14, 18. Another promise, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm leaving you, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's how united the Son and the Spirit are. Drop down to verse 28. I go away and I will come to you. Again, the Spirit's, Jesus' departure means the Spirit's arrival. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Again, I'm leaving. The Spirit's coming. So this has been Jesus' promise throughout this night. And yet, what do we see at the beginning of this passage? It's that this promise The apostles did not cherish this promise as they ought to. Look at the next words in verse five. I am going and none of you asks me, where are you going? But understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not chiding them for failing to ask those words, that question. Back in chapter 14, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. Jesus is not upset. He's not rebuking them for not saying these words, where are you going? That's not the problem here. The reason Jesus chides his apostles is because none of them were focusing, were focusing on what Jesus' promise to leave meant for them. We're not focusing on what Jesus promised to do once he would enter into his father's presence. They were too preoccupied with themselves. They were too concerned about the loss they would soon experience, too fearful of the threats of pain Jesus just promised them. They're too overwhelmed by the testifying task that Jesus has just given them at the end of chapter 15. Again, they were focusing on their own deficiencies, their own fears, rather than fixing their mind on the spirit Jesus promised to send them. Well, you do not need a seminary degree to make an application for us here. I read this, and it sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? In fear, we remain silent about the gospel because of the possible losses we might experience. 
We're filled with angst. And so we do not fulfill our testifying task. Why? Because like these apostles, we have become preoccupied with ourselves. And we have not fully grasped or cherished the significance of Christ sending us his spirit. So why Jesus says in verse six, because I have said these things to you, sorrow, grief, fear, anxiety has filled you, overtaken you, it's controlling you. It's filling your heart, the mission control center of your life. And yet notice Jesus' next words, but, but, contrary to the fear that is welling up inside of you, even in light of all the threats that surround this testifying task, I tell you the truth. That is to say, whatever worry or angst or inadequacy you might be feeling right now, it's unwarranted. All of it is unnecessary. Why? Verse seven, because it is to your advantage, your benefit, that I go away. So here's the question. What promise frees us to boldly testify about Christ in a world that hates him and poses great threats to all who stand for him? What promise frees us, emboldens us? What promise could Jesus ever give that could dispel all the fears of inadequacy when it comes to our witness for him? Here's the promise. Verse seven, if I do not go away, the helper, the spirit will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So just consider the magnitude of Jesus's promise here. He is promising to send eternal God to his people. He is promising to send eternal God to his people. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He said, when the helper comes to them and to us, they, we, will be resourced by heaven and anchored to God the Trinity. Before him, before the spirit, all human opposition shrinks And so, application, instead of being intimidated and crushed, these young men, by extension, all of us, should be emboldened. We have the Spirit of God. And notice the connection Jesus makes now, the reason Christ gives us his Spirit. Christ promises here to give us his Spirit so that so that we will fulfill our testifying task. The promise promise of the Spirit is tied to our witness for Christ. We saw it at the end of chapter 15. Notice verse 26. Verse 26, when the helper comes, what will he do? He will testify about me. And then verse 27, how does the Spirit testify of Christ? It is when we 
testify also. Spirit's testifying is connected to our testifying. When we point the unbeliever to Christ, the Spirit testifies along with us. We've been given God's Spirit. We literally have the eternal, omnipotent, regenerating Spirit on our side. And Jesus promises that this Spirit, in his own timing, when he chooses, he will use our words to shatter the unbelief of the sinner. He'll use our testimony to expose the sinner's need for a Savior. That's verse 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world. The Spirit will do what we cannot do. He will take our words and drive them into the heart of the unbeliever. And in his own timing, according to the purpose of his Father, the Spirit will perform the supernatural work of regeneration. He will convict the sinner. And he will miraculously change the unbelieving heart into a heart of faith and repentance. That's what Jesus promises the Spirit will do. One commentator put it this way, the spirit is not the domesticated, the tame auxiliary, the accessory of the church. No, he is the powerful advocate. He's the heart-shattering, the regenerating agent who goes before the church to bring the world under conviction. And he's on our side. So I must ask, in light of this promise, why would we ever fear the testifying task we have been given by Christ? Why would we ever let anxiety or worry or any feeling of inadequacy fill our heart and cause us to remain quiet when those gospel opportunities present themselves? We are like the apostles. We must grasp Jesus' promise of his spirit we must grasp the testifying, convicting, regenerating spirit who is on our side. And we must then make sure that when we testify of Christ, it matches the spirit's testimony. We must make sure that our two testimonies are united together for when they are in the spirit's timing, that is what he uses to convict and change and shatter the heart of the unbeliever. So what Jesus does now in verses 8 through 10 is he explains what the Spirit can do, what the Spirit can do when our testimony about Christ matches his testimony about Christ. He shows us what the Spirit can do when our two testimonies unite together. There's three works the Spirit can do. Let's notice the first one. Number one, Jesus promises that the Spirit will shatter a sinner's unbelief. The Spirit will shatter a sinner's unbelief when we proclaim Christ's identity. When we proclaim Christ's identity. Notice verse eight. And he, the Spirit, when he comes, will convict, will expose, will reveal the world of unbelievers concerning sin. Concerning sin. 
But notice, Jesus is not referring to the spirit convicting the unbeliever of sin in general here. No, Jesus is referring to the spirit convicting the unbeliever of one particular sin. The main sin that shuts heaven's doors. Drop down to verse nine. He'll convict concerning sin, and now here's the sin the spirit will expose, because they do not believe in me. This is the core sin the spirit must shatter if someone is going to be saved. This is the foundational sin that bars heaven's doors. It is the sin of rejecting Jesus as the one and only Savior sent by the Father. It is the sin of not submitting to Jesus as the eternal Son of God. It's the sin of relegating Jesus to the plethora of gods or considering Jesus as merely a good teacher, a mere man. This is the core sin the Spirit must expose if someone is going to come to Christ in saving faith. In the words of 2 Corinthians 4, the Spirit must open blind eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we've seen this core sin throughout this book. Jesus has warned about it. He's spoken about it. John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. You believe, you're saved. But the warning, he who does not believe in Christ, he who commits this foundational damning sin, unbelief, he's been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 16. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will perish in your sins. Or think of Jesus' warning in John 8, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe I'm united to Father in such a way that I share the same nature as the Father, that I am God incarnate, unless you believe I'm equal with God, unless you believe that, you will die in your sins. Unless one comes to a saving knowledge of the person and the identity of Jesus, there is no heaven. There is no reconciliation with the Father. There's no eternal life. There's only eternal death. Which means now application. If the Spirit, through our testimony, is going to expose an unbeliever's unbelief in Jesus then we, in our testimony, when we give the gospel, we must explain who Jesus is. That's basic, right? We must explain who Jesus is so that the Spirit can do his convicting, regenerating work. Let's put it this way. For the Spirit to bring this necessary conviction, we must speak of Christ's person. We must speak of Christ's person. We must speak of the glory of Jesus' divine nature when we explain the gospel. We must speak of the glory of Christ's eternal sonship and exclusivity as Savior when we give the gospel. 
We must speak of the glory of his person, the glory of his identity. For that is the testimony, Jesus says, the Spirit will use, verse 8, to convict the world concerning the sin of not believing in him. So being nice is not giving the gospel. And showing love is not giving the gospel. And promising to pray for somebody is not giving the gospel. Now, be nice and be loving and pray. But understand, that's not what the Spirit uses to change the heart of the sinner. We must speak the truth of Jesus. We must unite our testimony with the convicting testimony of the Spirit. Amen. Here's a second work the Spirit can do in the life of the unbeliever. Number two, the Spirit will shatter a sinner's self-righteousness when we proclaim Christ's perfection. The Spirit will shatter a sinner's self-righteousness when we proclaim Christ's perfection. Notice the next phrase in verse eight. The Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. So he convicts the world of unbelief, the sin of unbelief, and now he convicts the world of the sin of righteousness, referring to a sinner's self-righteousness. It's referring to all the world's efforts to earn enough righteousness to, in order to be accepted by God. This is how proud the unbelieving heart is. This is how proud the unbeliever is. At best, the unbeliever believes he can earn a place in God's holy presence. He can earn it. At worst, he believes there's nothing that would ever keep him out of God's presence. The problem for the unbeliever is not a self-esteem deficiency. That's not the problem. The problem that in their sin and in their hardened heart, blinded eyes, the unbeliever thinks far too highly of himself. Again, so much so that he believes he can earn entrance into God's presence. And yet, what does the Bible teach? Isaiah 53. All of us, all of us, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. Psalm 14, there is no one who does good. There's no one. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Think of Isaiah 64. This is the passage that Jesus is referring back to here. Isaiah 64, 6. This is the righteousness the Spirit must convict the unbeliever of. For all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds, the very righteousness the world relies upon to be accepted by God, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. That's the righteousness the Spirit must convict the unbeliever of. Every good thing that they can do deserves only wrath. 
And unless someone confesses this kind of sinfulness before God, unless they confess this sinfulness in themselves, unless they recognize the futility of their own man-made self-righteousness, they will never be accepted by God. He's too holy. He's too righteous. John Calvin put it this way, we shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first assuredly know that we have no righteousness of our own. So the question here is then, how does the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit expose the worthlessness of an unbeliever's self-righteousness? Well, we're told in verse 10, he does this when we once again point the unbeliever to Christ. His testimony coupled with our testimony. Specifically, when we point to the ascension of Christ to his Father's right hand. I love this. Verse 10. The Spirit will convict, shatter the unbelieving heart concerning his self-made righteousness. Watch now, because I go to the Father because I go to the Father. That is to say this. It is the ascension of Jesus, his going to the Father. It is his ascension that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the only perfectly righteous one to ever walk this earth. And that everyone else, all of us, fail in this perfection. It's this ascension that proves that. How? Why? Because only Jesus has been welcomed into the Father's presence without needing any atonement for sin. He's the perfect one. Christ's ascension proves his righteousness. And thus our message to the unbeliever is this. If you think you can earn God's favor, if you think You'll be accepted by God based upon your own efforts. If you think you need no forgiveness of sin, no sacrifice for sin, if you think that God will welcome you into his presence the way you are, then you better be sure that your self-righteousness is no less than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You better be sure that your righteousness is no less than the one who sits at the Father's right hand right now, the one who knew no sin. This is why we cannot end our explanation of the gospel with Christ's death on the cross. We must also speak of Christ's resurrection that proves his victory over sin. But here we see we must speak of his ascension because his ascension verifies his perfect holiness, his sinlessness, while also exposing our sinfulness. And thus, if the Spirit is going to use our testimony to convict the unbeliever about the futility of their self-made righteousness, 
then we must speak of God's perfect holiness. That is not a welcome message today. We know that. That's what we read in chapter 15. It's not welcomed. But we must speak of God's perfect holiness. We must not be shy about man's utter sinfulness. We must explain Jesus' perfect life and his welcoming ascension. And then we transition to that glorious gospel for us that because of God's mercy, all who come to this resurrected and ascended Jesus in saving faith, we, because of mercy and grace, are credited with the very perfection of Jesus. Perfection we could not earn because of that credited righteousness to us, we will be like Christ was. We will be accepted by God into his holy presence. But this credited righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus. Our testimony of Christ must match the Spirit's testimony of Christ. leads then into a third way the Spirit brings conviction of sin to the unbeliever. A third work the Spirit can do when our testimonies match. Number three, the Spirit will shatter a sinner's hope. The Spirit will shatter a sinner's hope when we proclaim Christ's victory. When we proclaim Christ's victory. Notice, it's all about pointing to Jesus. And if there's anything that describes the unbeliever of our day, it is a refusal to believe that divine judgment will one day fall upon them. We should not be surprised, 2 Peter 3 put it this way, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And how do they mock? They say this, where is the promise of his coming? You keep saying judgment will fall. Where is it? I don't see it. That's the hope of the believer, uh, the unbeliever. The hope is that God is too loving to ever pour out his wrath against anyone. The hope is that man is too good to ever incur God's just anger. And yet what does Peter promise that unbeknownst to these scoffers, these mockers, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Judgment's coming. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of, notice, ungodly men. God's holiness will not be mocked. And God's patience will one day come to an end. And one day God's wrath against sin will fall. Judgment's coming. Well, back to our text here. What is the proof of this coming judgment? What is the message the Spirit uses to convict the unbeliever of their mocking, their scoffing, their false hope? Finish verse 11. The Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment, and here's the message the Spirit will use to bring this conviction because the ruler of this world has been judged. When we testify the gospel, 
not only must we proclaim the glory of Jesus' identity, and not only must we proclaim the glory of his ascension, his perfection, but here we see that we must proclaim the glory of his victory over Satan on the cross. This is what the Bible tells us from the very beginning in Genesis 3. While Jesus hangs on the cross, he will crush the serpent's head. That's the promise. Colossians 2. While Jesus hangs on the cross, he will disarm the ruler of this world. Hebrews 2. While Jesus hangs on the cross, he will render Satan powerless. 1 John 3, while Jesus hangs on the cross, he will destroy the works of the devil. Judgment fell upon Satan that day. And it's judgment that will find its final expression at the end of the age when the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Judgment on the cross leading to that final judgment later. What's the point Jesus is making here? It's simply this. If Satan, if Satan, the ruler of this evil world system, could not escape Christ's judgment, then how do you, unbeliever, imagine yourself ever escaping God's coming judgment for you? the devil could not escape it, then certainly the children of the devil will not be able to escape it either. That's the warning here. That's the message. This is what we find in 2 Thessalonians 1. That there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And he will deal out retribution, judgment to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you reject the gospel, God's wrath will one day fall on you. That's the promise. And the unbeliever will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Warren Worsby has summarized it this way. When a lost sinner is truly under conviction, he will see the folly and evil of unbelief. He will confess that he does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ. And he will realize that he is under condemnation because he belongs to the world and the devil. To which he then adds this. There can be no conversion without conviction. And there can be no conviction apart from the spirit of God using the word of God and the witness of the child of God. So you see how the testimonies need to be united. The spirit's testimony, our testimony. That's what brings the conviction that leads to conversion. And thus, as we bring Jesus' words to a close here, we must ask ourselves two questions. Two questions. The first is this. Why would we ever 
shrink back in fear? Why would we ever shrink back in fear or grow silent because of any personal inadequacy that we have? Again, we can't answer or win every debate, but we have the spirit on our side. Why would we ever shrink back when we have the convicting, regenerating spirit testifying along with us? That's the first question. The second question is this. Does our testimony of Christ, does our gospel presentations call them, does our testimony of Christ match the Spirit's testimony about Christ? Are we proclaiming what Jesus promises the Spirit will use to convict the heart of the sinner? Are we testifying to the glory of Christ's person, the sinlessness of his nature, the certainty of his judgment? Is that our message? Or have we truncated that to something more palpable for the hearer? There are many missions in this world that can distract us, many missions. But our primary mission is this, we are to testify of Christ and his gospel And then we wait. We wait for the Spirit to do his heart-shattering, convicting, saving work. That's the task that our Savior has left us with. Father, it's quite a calling, quite a calling that you have given to us. Now, Lord, I pray that you would grant us repentance to turn, Lord, perhaps from a faulty gospel that we may have been speaking. Repentance to turn from perhaps fear that keeps us silent. And that we would point to the glory of our Savior. And that in your timing, according to your purposes, you would use those words to shatter the heart and bring sinners to repentance and faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.